Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. This morning our call to confession is found in Acts 19 verse 18. It says, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. And this passage is after the message we're going to hear this morning of Stephen's proclamation of Jesus as Lord. Um, this verse and actually the one following uh, really speak to the early Christians before they were converted and their addiction or use of magic. And uh, it's always surprising to me how much magic is mentioned in the Bible, specifically even in, in Acts. Um, no surprise today, of course, that uh, we're still, all these years later, uh, using magic or superstition or luck. Um, any reliance on anything other than God is where we put our hope and trust, and we call those idols. So we come together now in this corporate worship to repent of our misplaced trust and confess of our sinful thoughts and deeds. Psalm 95.6 says, Oh, come, let us worship the God. Turn back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. We looked at the seven deacons appointed last time in the first seven verses. So we'll pick it up at verse 8. And this may have been unwise, but I um, chose a long, long passage today. So we're going to read the whole account of Stephen, essentially. So settle in. Uh, I didn't want to break up um, the, the, uh, the story. Uh, of what Stephen does here. So we'll read all the way through chapter 7. Let's start at verse 8. Hear God's infallible word. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And his after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. 
And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and, his and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. 
As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away, the, away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he, cried, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. The grass withers and the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Long passage here to consider, but let's consider first uh, a common myth that the New Testament and Acts is all about Paul. Notice that we have this long section on Stephen. Uh, we have Philip coming up and Cornelius as well. Uh, Paul is uh, mentioned here. There's a good foreshadowing going on. But Stephen is in the spotlight here. He testifies against the Jews' rejection of Jesus. That's essentially what he does. And he's stoned. He does that by telling Israel's story. Uh, but you'll notice what he chooses to select. Uh, what he's really doing is testifying against their rejection of Jesus. Well, let's back up to verse 8 of chapter 6 and consider the accusation first. Stephen does signs and wonders. He preaches evangelistic sermons. Uh, so that's what Stephen is doing. And the synagogue of the freedmen, these are Jews, uh, uh, begin to oppose him. 
They oppose his message. The freedmen were basically slaves who had been freed. Uh, I think, as I understand the, the situation, it's roughly our middle class. It's people like us who take on, say, uh, debt to buy a house, uh, so we're in debt, but then we become freed over time where we move ourselves out of debt, and, and so it's kind of the, the middle class, I would say. It's a synagogue from Cilicia in part, which is Paul's home state. Saul of Tarsus is from Cilicia. And so there's been a lot of speculation, I tend to agree with it, that Saul of Tarsus is one of those who is debating with Stephen here. And he obviously loses. <laughs> That's what's said in verse 10. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And if you remember what Paul says about himself later on, you know, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a sat under the feet of Gamaliel. The, Saul of Tarsus, I think, had a fair bit of pride in, how, in his knowledge and how, how much he knew. And he did know a great deal. His mind was sharp and bright. But apart from the spirit, uh, Stephen is uh, defeating him in debate, pointing out that Jesus is the Christ. Well, they accuse him. Once Stephen obviously wins the debate, verse 11, what do they do next? They secretly instigate men and say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words. This is something we have to keep in mind in, in, in this holy war between the serpent and mankind. Satan does not fight fair. And we constantly forget that and complain. But Satan is out to destroy us. If he can't win with logic and reasoned debate, then he'll try politics or brute force or false witnesses and lies. Uh, we've seen that in the last 20 years or so, maybe more than that. A small minority of homosexual activists have manipulated our entire culture and political leaders into celebrating their deviant behavior and forcing everyone else to as well. But this doesn't just come from Satan. This is coming from sinners even in the church among God's people. right? These are the, these are the synagogue of the freedmen. So uh, history is full of theological disagreements, church history is, uh, that turn into accusations of wrongdoing. If you can't convince them, then discredit them or remove them. Uh, get others to question if they're really Christians at all. That, that's the kind of thing going on here. So they arrest uh, Stephen. They charge him before the Sanhedrin. And Jesus said this would happen, right? Luke 12, verse 11. When they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. The Spirit will teach you in that hour what you ought to say. That's Luke. That's volume one. And here in part two of Luke's book, Acts, he's showing how that came to be. Here's Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, knowing what to say by the Spirit's leading. It's coming true. Now the accusation, verse 12, is speaking against the temple and the law. Uh, and Israel, the Sanhedrin, the leaders, the rulers, they really made these their sacred cows. And I'm going to use that phrase a fair bit today, sacred cows. The prophets spoke against blind trust in the temple. Jeremiah 7 we read, right? Don't trust in these words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. You can't just say we've got the temple over and over and, and have that cover whatever you do. That's not how this works. So the Jews had made uh, this a sacred cow. Jesus um, challenged their interpretations of the law, but not the law itself. 
And they're twisting that. And they're saying, no, Jesus says he's going to destroy our whole way of life and that he's against Moses and he's against, the, he's against the customs of this place, meaning worship in the, te in the temple. So the Jews had made sacred cows of Moses and the temple, essentially. And they will persecute anyone who doesn't hold to their distorted view of what the temple and Moses should be. So that's the accusation uh, in verses uh, 13, 14. And they look at him at the end of chapter 6, and his face is like the face of an angel, which is interesting. Moses' face shone when he came down the mountain. It, 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 Luke is making a, a definite connection there. Jesus' face shone on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. When you, when, you, when you hear his face was shining in the Bible, you automatically think Moses. And here they are accusing him of being against Moses. <laughs> and so God makes his face shine. He says, this is Moses, <laughs> basically, saying to the Sanhedrin, right? So uh, now Stephen's face is like an angel, and he's going to now interpret the law, which Moses gave. And now he's going to recount the law. Just, uh, he's almost like a second Moses in that way. So here he goes, uh, chapter 7. Uh, are these things so, the high priest says? And he gets how many verses? 50 verses here of recounting of Israel's history. That's his defense. Wow. And it, it almost seems at times like he's rambling without a point or he's stalling or something. It's like, as you read this, you kind of wonder... The Sanhedrin know this stuff. They know the history. So it's not like he's giving them new information. That's not what's going on. You can't say the whole history of Israel in a short speech. So what Stephen picks out to say is very important. We're going to focus on that for a little while. He makes two main points, though, just to give you the, the, the bumper sticker uh, right up front. First, he says, God was never limited by a place or a temple. That's the first of his main points. And again, he's, he's working against their sacred cow there, right? To them, the temple is everything. And if you're against the temple, well, then you're against God. Well, God worked without a temple for a long time. That's Stephen's basic point. His second point is the Jews have consistently rebelled against God. And uh, so Stephen does this with three main people, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. So he starts with Abraham, our father, he says. We're all Abraham's descendants here. God called Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, far, far away from here. And the first thing he tells him is to leave his country. So, so there you have kind of a double whammy. It's like he, he didn't have to be loyal to his nation. And he wasn't in this place yet either. None of this is about a place. So uh, God calls Abraham. Abraham believes God, and he's counted righteous, Genesis 15, 6, before Abraham had land or a temple or children or before he was circumcised. All of that comes later. He's saved and justified before any of that. That's part of Stephen's point here too. So take away from that that God's purpose for us is what settles us. It's not the outward situation we face. And we, it's hard for us to, to um, 
accept that when our outward situation is difficult. But it's, that's the exact time we need to hear it. It does not matter what we lack physically. God's initiative, his purpose, makes the difference. I think that's really true in the story of Abraham. He had a lot of money, had a large household, but he could not obtain land or children. That, that was beyond him and his uh, resources and wealth. And that's the two things God promises him. So uh, just keep that in mind. God's purpose settles us, not the outward situation that we're in. Uh, it, it's, it's true, of course, that the, the outward situation that we're in, the, the physical um, properties of our lives, God blesses us through those things, of course. But God often uh, withholds some of those blessings uh, to point us to promises further off yet to come. That's Abraham. The second defense, beginning in verse 9, is from Joseph. Uh, here you, he talk, focuses in on Joseph being in Egypt. Uh, God's purpose was not thwarted because Joseph had to go way out to Egypt. That, that wasn't some detour. That wasn't a failure of God's promises. That was part of the plan. Joseph gives bread to the whole world from an unlikely place. And I'm phrasing it all these ways on purpose because you see that's exactly what Jesus did. Right? Jesus is the bread that comes down from heaven, born in Bethlehem, but he grows up in Nazareth in Galilee, an unlikely place. And they didn't expect that. And yet he feeds the whole world through his body. So Joseph, God's favor is with Joseph, verses 9 and 10. And that makes the rest of Israel jealous. Joseph's brothers are jealous of him. Not for the last time. Jesus, too. He is handed over to the Romans to be crucified out of envy, Scripture says. So there's, Stephen's making all these connections on purpose. Joseph is a ruler, verses 12 through 16. But his true identity was not known to the rest of Israel at first. It takes him a couple of trips until finally they realize, oh, it's Joseph. And he's the ruler. Same thing with Jesus. He's sent to Israel as their ruler. But they don't recognize him. And it's going to take him a while. So you see how Stephen is setting the story in this way to show them what Jesus, who he is, what he's done. Uh, there's more on that. Verse 14, uh, the son calls the father to leave Israel to be saved. Joseph sends to his father Jacob and says, come to Egypt. You'll be safe here. You'll have food here. Right? That's how it is with Jesus. Jesus is young enough to be a son to most of the Sanhedrin members. And there he stands on trial before them, Matthew 26. And they're accusing him of blasphemy. And he's calling them to believe that he's their savior. Don't trust in a temple or a place. Trust me. You're going to see the Son of Man ascending in the clouds. He says, calling to Daniel 7. But the Sanhedrin stay put. They refuse to go outside the city in faith to the Son who delivers. They went outside the city to mock him. Not wanting to lose their place or their nation, they kill Jesus. And the result is that they lose their place and their nation a generation later. 
So Stephen's deep into the typology here. I love it. This is wonderful stuff. That's Joseph. Uh, side note here, uh, this is how the apostles and the New Testament prophets read the Old Testament, the life of Jesus and their time. It's rather foreign to us. We're more used to the systematic theology type of categories. But th this is how they approached who Jesus was and what he meant to them. It's a little foreign to us, but it's foundational to New Testament doctrine to, to study this speech and to see why does he pick these people. That's why I'm spending some time on this. The third defense uh, Stephen gives is from Moses. Here is a longer section, verses 17 through 43. Moses, until he's 40, you have Pharaoh dealing harshly with Israel. Uh, Stephen speaks very highly of Moses, countering the accusation against him, right? They, they're saying Stephen is opposed to Moses. And, and no, Stephen says, Moses grew up beautiful before God. So, so he's countering that accusation. Moses, verse 23, sought to save Israel, but they rejected him. He was one of their own brothers. See what he's doing again? He's describing Jesus. That's what Jesus did for you. You're, you're treating Jesus the same way that you treated Moses back then. Verses 30 to 36. Moses from 40 years old to 80 years old. Lots of time on the burning bush here. And the reason there, I think, is because that place was holy. Because God was there and he made it so. And that's what makes a place holy. Not because we've spent 46 years building this temple in Jerusalem, right? It's not holy because we, the Sanhedrin, decided it's going to be. The place is holy because God makes it so. And so uh, Moses uh, takes his uh, sandals off because that place is holy ground. Uh, God sends the one that they reject to save them. Verse 35, he this is why uh, Stephen's spending time on this. God sends Moses back to Egypt to save Israel. And Israel rejects him. They, they turn against him as Pharaoh uh, treats them more and more harshly. Then you have the Exodus. Jesus does signs and wonders as he leads Israel out of bondage too. Then you have the 40 years in the wilderness, verses 37 and on. And in the wilderness, Israel still rejects their Savior. They go back to Egypt in their hearts. They worship idols in the desert. This is a striking rebuke to the Sanhedrin. You notice that he's kind of ramping it up over time. It, it starts out pretty mild with, with Abraham. And with Joseph, they maybe start to see where he's going. But with Moses, they're not missing the point at all. And that's why he ramps up his rhetoric at verse 51. Anyway, it's a rebuke to the Sanhedrin. Again, Stephen's making a parallel here. You are being like your fathers. You're doing the same thing. There were those among the Sanhedrin who compromised with Rome's pagan culture. S Stephen is also pointing again to a time of repentance. For a generation after Christ's work on the cross, Israel had a chance to come to Jesus in faith for about 40 years, from 30 A.D. when Jesus dies on the cross until Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 A.D. And for 40 years, Israel was in the wilderness, trying God tempting him ten times. Are they going to come along? Are they going to come in faith? Most of them died in the wilderness. The parallel is striking. So the application for us is clear. It doesn't matter where you are physically. 
or even where you're going. You may be in Egypt, you may be in Midian, you may be in Rome, the temple, New York City, Powell, Brighton, whatever it is, it matters where your heart is and where it wants to go. Are you clinging to your sins, to your grievances? Are you renouncing them according to God's standard and seeking deliverance from your sin by Jesus today? So without actually coming out and saying those words to the Sanhedrin, Stephen is saying that to the Sanhedrin. You're opposed to God, but that's what he says in verse 51. You're stiff-necked people, you're resisting the Holy Spirit, just as your fathers did. Are you going to turn around or not? That's the main point, verse 44 to 53. God saved his people without a temple, apart from the law, Romans 3 says, right? Israel has consistently rebelled against God's deliverance and against God's law. And they're doing so again in rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. So, just a bit more there from 43 on. Uh, Moses is without a country his whole life. He's in Egypt and then Midian and then the desert. Right? Jesus has no place to lay his head. The tent of meeting, uh, they're supposed to be meeting in the tent of meeting, not the tent of Molech, verse 43. And the tent where Moses' face shone is mentioned, just as Stephen's face is shining now. So then he mentions David and Solomon and Isaiah, deals with the temple, and he downplays again its importance. Without saying anything negative, God dwells there, but, he, but what kind of house will you build for me? Verse 49, he quotes Isaiah. It took until David to get a temple, and God didn't even command it to be built then. And David didn't even build it. God reveals himself to the fathers outside of Israel without a temple. Stephen could have just as easily have been quoting Jeremiah 7 here too. So... Just to sum it all up, all the major moments of Israel's life until David happened outside of the temple, outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel. Abraham in Ur, Mesopotamia, Joseph in Egypt, Moses at Sinai, Israel in the wilderness. It's astounding. And then the climax, verse 51 to 53. This is not just a theological dispute. It's not just typological interpretation that you can disagree over and agree to disagree. This is a matter of faith in God. You are stubbornly resisting the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. You have the law, you trust in Moses, but you disobey the law. And Stephen's face shines like Moses did, but they, op they oppose Stephen, just as Israel opposed Moses so often. Let's move on to verse 54. Skip a little bit here. Their response is that they are enraged. The New King James says that they're cut to the heart, which is interesting because that's the same phrase used in Pentecost when the people are repentant. They're cut to the heart too, and they say, what should we do to be saved? Here they're also cut to the heart, but not in the convicted sort of way. But, but like, like when you see or you hear about something really gross or something really evil, and you just kind of convulse like, ugh, that kind of cut to the heart. They, they are completely repulsed by what they're hearing. And that's important to remember. Realize that when you call people to repent of sin, 
their response is likely to be intense. A call to repent is intense and not to be taken lightly. If they don't agree that it's sin, they may become very angry. That's, that's the landscape of the culture war that we're in right now, right? We're disagreeing over what sin is. That's what makes it what it is. In this case, they're angry at being accused of resisting the Spirit and rejecting Jesus, which they're doing. So their anger is sinful. It can also work the other way sometimes, right? If someone accuses you of being in sin because you bottle feed your baby or because you show your kids a Disney movie, right? Then, then maybe the accused is right to be offended. So be careful making accusations or bringing a rebuke based on your limited understanding of someone's situation. I'm going to go easy there. Go, go as hard as you're extremely certain about. Well, verse 55, Stephen sees God, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. This again recalls Daniel 7. It's the same language. The point being, the Messiah has come to you, and he's gone back up to his throne, and you still reject him. Even though he's sitting on the throne, you're rejecting your ruling king. It recalls Jesus standing before the same Sanhedrin. Uh, he's asked point blank if he's the Christ. And he says, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, coming with the clouds. So Stephen sees Jesus standing. And here's, uh, commentators always point this out, everywhere else Jesus is sitting at the right hand. Here he's standing. Right? There might not be much to that, but we do have here the first martyr for Christ. The first to witness to the Lordship, the salvation of Jesus as God's Messiah, who dies because of it. It seems right to me that Jesus rises from his throne to bear witness to Stephen, bearing witness of him. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And that's what Jesus is doing. I like the whole idea of spontaneous standing, like it seems Jesus does here. There, there are times it's not appropriate to remain seated. Right? We, we must honor the honorable. Scripture says to rise in the presence of the aged, for one thing. I always find that interesting. Or think of Handel's Messiah, right? King George stands up spontaneously at the Hallelujah Chorus. Well, the king stands, everybody's got to stand. And we've been doing it ever since. It's crazy. Very fitting. I went to a, a concert recently, Andrew Peterson, and he's got this wonderful song called, it is, Wor uh, is He Worthy? Uh, and as, as he sang that song towards the end of the concert, everybody in the crowd spontaneously stood up. It was one of those things where you can't stay seated when you're singing about Jesus is worthy to receive all glory and honor and praise. So, Jesus stands. They take him outside, verse 57, 58. They stone him outside the city. Uh, just a minor note here. Interesting that they observe the minor points of the law. They go outside the city and they stone him. It's all done procedurally correct. 
right? It's, it's much the same as with Jesus. But no, they're committing a major atrocity. Stephen says at his death what Jesus said at his, verse 59 and 60. They're both executed on false charges, trumped up charges of blasphemy with false witnesses. They both appeal to Daniel 7. They both pray for forgiveness for their executors and for God to receive their spirit. Stephen is a Christ follower, a faithful disciple to his dying breath. The only difference is that Stephen prays to Jesus. Stephen puts Jesus on par with God the Father because he prays to Jesus. He's imitating Christ as best he can. And so Stephen dies. And as we read the story, if we would read this story in the newspaper today, it seems to me we would read it very differently than we read it in the Bible. In the Bible. We take this too easily as a failure. This is not a failure. This is faithfulness, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Whether they die like Stephen here or at a ripe old age, peacefully in bed. It makes me think of uh, Narnia, the last battle. Lewis has this great passage where the animals are dying in the last battle scene. And as they die, there's, there's this relief. They're confused. They're, they're in pain physically. They don't know what's going on. But they fall asleep and have sweet relief. just wanted to read one verse into chapter 8 too, just to point out Saul is there approving of his execution. So you have that contrast between this hard-edged condemnation and the sweet sleep of resting with Christ in glory. So, back to the main point a minute. Stephen has testified of Jesus as the Christ in Jerusalem showing that God has been with his people all over the place. God has done everything needed for us throughout history without a holy place. And now uh, the Spirit is going to go out as Jesus predicted and commanded in the Great Commission from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. We'll see Samaria in a few verses next time. That's where we leave the story for now. Just a few points of application before I quit. Number one, uh, know your Old Testament. Stephen knew his Old Testament in and out. And he knew what to call upon to make his point. Put yourself in God's story. This is not just some old story about someone else. It is your story. We're, we've been grafted in and, and we have some catching up to do to understand our story. Number two, remember the center of the story is Jesus. He's the offspring of Abraham in whom all families of the earth are blessed. He's the new Joseph, rejected and unknown by his brothers, but he delivers them anyway. 
He's the greater Moses who interprets the law perfectly for us, intercedes completely for us, leads us out of bondage to Satan and sin into the liberty of the promised land. That involves conquest with Joshua. And the New Testament version of that is the Great Commission to disciple the world. And that is a huge task, but we need to begin with ourselves. So number three, identify your own sacred cows. For the Sanhedrin, it was the temple. For the Pharisees, it was the Sabbath. These were good things, things God even commanded. But they elevated them too high in their place in their priorities. And there's something for us to apply there. What might we be giving too much priority to right now? What's gotten out of hand in your time or your money going towards? Put things in their proper place. Not necessarily by speaking negatively of them, but by rehearsing the greater things that God has done, like Stephen does here. Notice that's how he approaches their sacred cow. He tells the story without that in it at all. (laughs) So, identify your sacred cows. I'll just touch on this lightly. I I don't have a a huge hobby horse on this with... um, our congregation or anything, but it is the 4th of July weekend, and for many conservative Christians, uh, their country can become a sacred cow, and we have to watch out for that. Go back to Abraham. When God makes his people, he makes them pilgrims and refugees. He takes them out of their country, gives them no country. Because we are Christ's people, no nation here will ever satisfy us until the new heavens and the new earth. Our desire for a godly nation is good, but it's really a desire for God's consummation of all things. F.F. Bruce, he's a classic commentator on Acts. He says, the people of God should sit loose to any earthly country. That's true. And at the same time, we can be deeply grateful for the blessings, the bounty that we have in this nation this weekend as well. So whatever it is, your sacred cow, family, work, leisure, approval of friends, whatever it is, consider that. Uh, Number four, opposition and persecution are going to come to God's people. That's very true. Had our family involved in the sound of music recently, and I was reminded of the courage of Captain Von Trapp against the Nazi Anschluss And Uncle Max suggests that maybe we should just go along to get along. No, we need to bear witness to Christ. And that may mean flight over the mountains at some point. I'm amazed how many Christians in the world face the threat of physical attack. I see stories every day. And yet we're often far more upset about our president supporting an unbiblical position on marriage. We have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. We can be upset about it. I'm not saying don't be upset about it. What will we do when serious opposition hits? I realize there's some coming and that it's getting worse. I kind of doubt compared to other places that it's really serious 
when we consider Stephen. Stephen paid for his life for testifying to Christ's lordship. What are you ready to give up to follow him? John Stone Street of the Colson Foundation, he likes to say we, we need to develop a theology of getting fired, which is an interesting way to put it. We, we need to be willing to give up some things uh, if that's going to call for compromise. I'll skip to the end. Remember your place of worship. That's the key this morning. For the Jews, it was the temple for a time. And Jesus tells them and us that his body is the temple, destroyed and rebuilt in three days. That is where God meets with us. Think again of the call to worship. Hebrews 10 is so critical. I'm going to use this more, I think. How is it that we come into God's presence? Through the veil. He's calling on temple imagery there, right? But what's the veil? The veil now is the broken, bloody body of Jesus. That's how we come to the Father. Through Jesus the Son. Through his body, sacrificed. That is where God meets with us. At the cross, where Jesus' body and life was sacrificed to atone for our sins. Our place of worship doesn't stay only at the cross. It goes on to the empty tomb where the body of Jesus is raised from death and then on from there to the right hand of the Father where Stephen sees him standing at God's right hand. There is our place of worship where Jesus is ruling and reigning until the consummation. All his enemies, all of our sacred cows, all of our obstacles to being sanctified will be subdued to his kingly reign. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your promise and your word that you are ruling at the right hand that your son is ruling at your right hand. That you are subduing all enemies under his feet. Lord, we are so thankful for that. When we hear in the news of enemies of yours who are advancing their agenda, and we are so thankful of that when we realize there is enmity in our own hearts, our own families, against your Son. Subdue us to your Son, we pray, that we might flourish and be blessed under your fatherly care. this in the name of Jesus, who is the ever-living Word. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we're going to circle back around to Hebrews chapter 10 again. I encourage you to read through it later today, beginning to end. We're kind of doing it back to front. For the first ten verses, let's hear God's word. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, 
and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offered continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer be, have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you take no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Thus ends the reading of God's word. One of the great blessings of this meal as we gather together is that we are drawn into the true presence of God, called to sit at his table and eat with our king. Through this meal, we are no longer called to remember our sins through the continual offering of sacrifices, but instead Christ tells us to do this in remembrance of him. We are to eat this meal remembering his body offered up to the Father in our behalf. We remember that through his offering, we are sanctified once and for all, brought into communion with our Heavenly Father by the one who perfectly did his will, our Lord and Savior. So come, for all things are now ready, the gifts of God for the people of God. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.